All right, well, uh, Rory, in case you guys don't know, Rory is our uh, normal teaching pastor here, and uh, he is, uh, I think, in Klamath Falls, visiting his, his family for Christmas, and so uh, I'm a high school biology teacher, and I got two weeks off, which is right in the middle right now, just the best feeling in the world, and uh, so I uh, have the opportunity to teach today, and so uh, I've got a... I went way too long last time I taught, so I got it all on one page, okay? Um, and so uh, I, I put a little thing out on Facebook. Um, some of you probably saw it, but most of you probably didn't. Uh, so I'm teaching today on uh, four evidences that fit best in a Christian worldview. And so um, I'm going to actually be going through a couple of points of science, uh, a little bit of philosophy, and some history and uh, just talking about uh, Christianity as a worldview, and Christianity as a way of, of seeing the world and understanding why things are the way they are. And um, and the reason, you know, as a as a, just my story, I became a Christian right when I went to college, and I was uh, a biology major at Oregon State University, you know, just a secular school. And uh, so I had this experience with God that was profound. And spiritual in nature, and it, it converted me to follow Jesus. Uh, it changed my heart and made me want to follow Him. But at the same time, I was just developing as a young man, and and developing as a person who really likes to think, and a person who really likes reason and and rational arguments and and evidence. And so, uh, as I was a Christian, as a biology major at a secular university, I began to just really take in all of the arguments that are out there about all this kinds of stuff. And for years, I mean, it really captivated me more than any other part of Christianity. Um, and, you know, I became a, a high school biology teacher thinking, um, you know, I'm going to use what I know and all this evidence and all this, you know, thought to really reach people for Christ in schools. And um, i got to say, most people don't care that much about evolution and biology and the arguments for God's existence. Um, and so, having become a teacher, you know, what really matters to the average person is really um, that you care about them. And that, you know, there's this really cheesy quote that's absolutely true. People don't know, or people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And so for the last, I've been teaching for 13 years now, for the last 13 years, I haven't really paid that much attention to this stuff. I mean, it's sort of entertainment for me. I'll I'll watch videos on YouTube at night, but um, it's really not that important to most people, uh, you know, in terms of why they become a Christian. Uh, But it, it matters a lot, I think, to a person after they become a Christian, like, okay, now that I'm following Jesus, like, am I crazy? You know? And so... Um, it has its place in Christianity, but it's not the central place in Christianity to go through some of this stuff. But, uh, but I do, I remember we had a guy in our church a, a few years ago who's moved on, and after he went somewhere else, he, uh, I remember he was talking to us about some book he had read or some guy he was listening to, and basically concerned that the New Testament wasn't an inspired uh, historical document. And, um, and I was just shocked because I just thought, man, we, we teach from the Bible here, you know, but sometimes I think we get so focused on the Bible and teaching, you know, uh, what's called uh, exegetically, like from the text, that we forget that, you know, there's some of us in the room maybe who are fairly new to Christianity and some, you've never looked at some of these things. And so, um, so my hope today is just to give the church some encouragement uh, that, you know, if you spend, it takes time to research these things and and to get into all the technical details of it all. But you shouldn't be afraid of it at all. You shouldn't shy away from it at all. Because as as I've studied science for 13 years since college, just teaching various things and getting to teach more and more advanced classes, my faith has only grown and, and really been confirmed by what I've seen. You know, there's just... I mean, when I was a young Christian, I was like, I'm gonna believe because I love Jesus. And I still feel that way, but now it's almost like, how could you believe anything else? Like, as you look at the evidence, it's actually pretty clear to a reasonable person. 
And, and so I'm going to go through four particular pieces of evidence that really don't make a lot of sense without a theistic worldview, okay, a, a worldview that says God exists, not necessarily Christian, but theism, that there must be some sort of intelligent cause behind the universe and life. And as, as I develop it further, I would even, I'm going to make the argument that this, this God is the God of the Bible and the God of, of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, and so, so I'm going to go through four things. I wrote down about ten really quick yesterday. I'm like, okay. And then I, I was like, you know what? I could do these four one day and these four one day and maybe just never do these. And I may never go into all those other ones. But I picked four that I really like and I'm going to share them with you today. So uh, the first one is, is the Big Bang. And, and one thing I put on each one of these, I put a little quote. I think there's a lot of people, like I, I was just listening to a high school kid talk the other day. And he said, oh yeah, I, re- I grew up really Christian, really Christian. But now, now that I'm 16 and I understand everything, you know, and he started, you know. And, it, and uh, I think there's this thing that happens in young people, high school, college age kids, where they, they've gotten just a tiny taste of scholarly opinion on something. And they totally form their own opinion on, on a subject and just think that they've got it all figured out. And so maybe... You know, some of these, I, I kind of put a little taste of like a very nominal understanding of science or history might lead a person to make this conclusion. But if you look deeper into it and you really act like a scholar, you're going to find that it, it doesn't at all fit this sort of very bleak or very basic misconception that, that's sort of out there in society. Okay, so, so one piece of evidence uh, that people will take the wrong way completely is the Big Bang. And I've even heard Christians, oh, the Big Bang, you know, just so the Big Bang is really good news for theists, okay? The Big Bang is really good news for Christians. And so let me get a little bit into the history, but before, before that, this is, this is sort of the misconception someone might have about the Big Bang. Science has proven the Big Bang created the universe, not God, okay? So if you go back in time, actually, look, yeah, okay, so if you go back in time, about 100 years, okay, maybe 150, right around that time frame, there were the, sort of these two competing hypotheses for the universe, okay? And anytime you're dealing in historical, scientific things, you're not, you're not doing the same kind of science you do in the present. In the present, we can do experiments, and we can test things and see how it works, and it's the science that gives us cell phones and satellites. But when you go back and you try to explain something that no one's seen, the, the common... Uh, way that people try to de- decide on something is called competing hypotheses. And so you, you take a couple of the best explanations people have come up with and you just weigh each one compared to the evidence. This is how claims about historical events are usually analyzed. And so there were two main ideas 150 years ago, 100 years ago. Uh, and one was called the steady state theory and one was called uh, the Big Bang. Okay, and so I need all those little, those wonderful middle school kids I just went over and talked to. I need all of you to come on the stage now. Go ahead. If if you're a middle schooler, a fourth, fifth grader, and you're in this room, come on up right now. Come on, come on. Don't be shy. I need more than three guys. I need you over here. Come on, Corey, send them up. I could take Callie. You come here. Callie will work. No, all these kids—they're terrified. Okay. Or then the grown-ups are going to have... Corey, come on. Yeah, we'll, we'll take some adults then. Okay, Janae, come on up. Jessica, come on up with Callie. Okay, so I'm going to demonstrate for you with these people. I'm going to demonstrate for you both the steady-state theory and the Big Bang Theory, okay, that existed about 150 years ago, people were arguing about. So, steady-state theory, okay, Ka- Corey, he's a galaxy. Look at him, such a nice galaxy. Corey's going to stand right here. Okay. Janae, go over there. Jessica, you can come up front. You three can be in the back, and they're terrified to be up here. Okay. So, now everybody do your best galaxy impression. Come back over here. Spread out. Spread out. Okay. Everybody do your best galaxy. Look, I'm a spiral galaxy. Okay. Ooh, I'm a nebula. I, I really don't know anything about astronomy. So, 100, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, the steady state theory was that the galaxies just kind of existed out there, and, and they were just staying where they were, being galaxies, okay? This is the steady state theory. They're just kind of being galaxies, just spiraling around, being a spiral galaxy, okay? And then, 
Another idea, now all, all of you galaxies, come here, come right next to the podium. I will be the center of the universe, by the way. Okay, now this idea, okay, you're going to walk that way. Everybody's going to walk really slow. Don't, don't walk until I say bang, okay? You're going to walk toward Callie. You're going to walk toward that speaker. Corey, you're going to walk toward the communion table. You're going to walk toward the piano. You're going to walk back that way. Okay, now the Big Bang Theory says the universe looks like this. Bang. Start walking slow, slow. This is what the Big Bang Theory says, that the universe is full of galaxies that are moving, okay? And so, great big, wasn't that a nice big bang, wasn't it? Okay, you guys can go sit down. Thank you very much. Everybody clap for them. Okay, so you have these two, 150 years ago, you have these two competing ideas, okay? The universe is static. It's not changing, okay? That fits much, much better with an atheist worldview because an atheist wants to say, the universe has just always existed. No beginning, no end, it's eternal, right? The Big Bang Theory said that there was a beginning, okay? This moment when we were all crowded around the podium is called the singularity, and everything is sucked into this infinitesimally small space, and it's called this thing, or really the thing that made it is called the singularity. So, the Big Bang Theory, even the name, the Big Bang Theory, was actually coined by a guy named Hoyle, who believed in the steady state theory. And he, this is maybe 1920. He believed the universe was static, had always existed because he was an atheist. And he liked that because about, I don't know, 75 years earlier, Darwin had popularized, um, you know, the theory of evolution. And so scientists had been going kind of from about 1850, 1860 till about 1950. Scientists had been going more atheist. Okay. And, and so this Big Bang Theory fit really well with that worldview, or sorry, the steady state theory fit really well with that worldview. And so Hoyle, when he's talking about the other idea that had been popularized by this Catholic priest who was also an astronomer, uh, he, he was making fun of the other idea. And he's like, oh yeah, this Big Bang, you know, like everything just explodes out of nothing. And he's, he's criticizing the idea. Well, you guys have heard of the Hubble Space Telescope, probably, right? This was named after a guy named Edward Hubble, who discovered that galaxies were indeed moving apart. And today, scientists even think they're ex uh, moving apart faster and faster. It's exponentially increasing how fast they're moving apart. And for reasons I don't understand, another big thing that confirmed a beginning to the universe was um, this thing called microwave, cosmic microwave back, background radiation. And it wasn't until 1964 that a guy by the name of Wilson was able to measure this cosmic microwave background radiation and confirm a prediction that had been made earlier that this stuff would exist if there had been this initial inflation of the universe. And so today, scientists have to admit, all scientists have to admit, yeah, the universe had a beginning. And so that is huge because as Christians, I mean, we could, as Christians, we could see a steady state and still believe in God. Like the earth doesn't, isn't expanding, right? But we know that God created the earth. Like, like we could look at a steady state as Christians and be like, well, God made it. There it was. But we have even better evidence than that because if you take all the galaxies that are spreading out and you hit rewind, it all comes back to a point. And there has to be a beginning if you have that. Okay, so that is huge. Like, there is no other explanation that anybody's come up with that really explains that. Now, because there's still a lot of atheists in the scientific community, they're coming up with these other ideas called the multiverse and, and um, string theory, and, and they're trying to come up with things to explain why there's a beginning to the universe, but really there's not. But none of it's empirical. None of it's based on evidence. It's theoretical physics to support what they already want to believe. But fundamentally, what we now see and have to accept from the universe is that it had a beginning. So this is a very um, powerful uh, piece of evidence that should bring you a lot of like uh, confidence. Okay, So when you hear the phrase, the Big Bang, it should make you smile. Not be like, oh, the Big Bang. You know, There's some other stuff associated with the Big Bang that Christians don't like, you know called stellar evolution and stuff, but, um, but the, the, the big idea that there's a beginning to the universe, that's a huge win for a theistic worldview. 
And here's, here's what's really cool. The thing that I was talking about, the singularity, where everything is in this infinitesimally small space. You have to have something that is not bound by the natural laws. When the, when the math, when the guy, I don't know anything about the math of physics and astronomy, but what they say is when the math get, when it gets really small, the math all breaks apart and they have no idea how it works at the beginning. And so you have to have something, and they call it the singularity, you have to have something outside of space and time to initiate that. Okay, you have to have something that is not natural, but is, by definition, supernatural. And so I was listening to uh, an astronomer, uh, who's a Christian, talk about this, and he's talking about the singularity, and he's saying God is the singularity. And, and so, really, really exciting and interesting stuff out there. Um, and here's, here's the thing, a lot of the, the argument that an atheist might bring back is, well, what caused God? And so here's the thing, we've got this law of cause and effect, that you can't just have nothing explode into everything, right? But as Christians, we believe, and if, I mean, I wish I could get into the scripture on this, God is without beginning and without end. You know, he's alpha and omega. And so God is outside of time. He is, he is beyond the realm of time. Time is a dimension that we live in. But God describes himself in his book as being beyond time. And that, that time doesn't affect him the way it affects us. And so that's exactly what it seems the singularity has to be. It has to be some sort of uncaused cause. Some, some sort of transcendent being outside of the rules of space and time that is without beginning and without end. And so that, that model of the Big Bang that we're hearing about all the time today is very encouraging for Christians. Okay, second one I'm going to talk about is the origin of life. Okay, so, so you know, I said I was going to talk about four big pieces of evidence that fit better in a Christian worldview. Okay, the Big Bang does great things for the Christian worldview. Number two, the origin of life. Now this is one, I could go off on this one for a while because I teach biology, I, I was a bio major, chem, chem minor, and so this in particular is like, for me, the most rock solid, like no one, there's nobody that could convince me or even begin to make a case for anything that makes sense for this except for God, okay? And so we're going to actually watch, or let me let me address this really quick. So you, maybe you remember textbooks in high school, you've seen things on the news, you know, every, every once in a while you'll see an article if you're like me and you pay attention to the science news. Oh, scientists think life evolved in clay. Oh, scientists think life evolved on a crystal. It was this primordial soup. You know, oh, this played a role. And so um, there's this guy, uh, you know, science has shown life started in a primordial cesspool and was not made by God. This is a silly idea. Here's, here's one of my favorite quotes uh, about evolution. Evolution is a fairy tale for grown-ups. Okay, there was actually a billboard somewhere where somebody was paying to put that on a billboard for a while. And it was just driving people nuts. And the funny thing is, it was said by an evolutionist. That phrase, evolution is a fairy tale for grown-ups. It was actually said by an evolutionist. And so, it's a fairy tale for grown-ups because uh, it means you don't have to submit yourself to any authority. You know? Like, you don't have to, you don't have to let God tell you what, how life works and, and what you're supposed to do. And so anyway... This, this is the biggest fairy tale part of the whole thing. Just, I mean, I, I love biology, but, um, and you know, some, some parts of evolution, like, I could respect that a person would think differently than me on that. Uh, but when it comes to the origin of life, the evidence is so bleak, and the statistics are so bad, there is just no way to make life uh, without intelligence behind it. And so, uh, go ahead, bring the video up. This guy, James Tour. Can we hit pause really quick? Just tap the screen, I think. Okay, so this video, it's, it's really strange. Like, there's these grandmas in a kitchen watching something, and then it comes on their TV, and there's people at a... I don't know what they're doing with this video. But uh, it's, they're trying to make it edgy for, you know, young people to be into it, I think. But uh, the guy they interview in this video, his name's James Tour. He's a synthetic organic chemist at Rice University, which is like a prestigious research university, I think in Texas, and he, I listened to his testimony, I, I've been posting a lot of things on my Facebook page um, lately of like this guy and other things, and, and uh, he, the coolest thing about this guy is, is not that he's a synthetic organic chemist and that he speaks out against evolution, the coolest thing about this guy is that he is on fire 
for Jesus Christ. And you listen to this guy's testimony, and it, like I was saying, this stuff, science, evidence, it's peripheral. The, the real issue for people is not the, the evidence. It's, it's their heart. And, and so, uh, anyway, he's just an awesome guy. Uh, you know, he's probably going to win a Nobel Prize at some point, although he's probably not because he speaks out against evolution, and that's kind of how it goes. But he works with other guys who are Nobel laureates, and, and uh, he's doing really cool stuff with nanotechnology. And so he is perfectly situated to speak about the origin of life. Okay, How could the first cell come into existence without intelligence behind it. And so he just talks about a few of the things that are going on. And it'll, it'll just give you a sense of how bleak uh, the picture is for the, any explanation for the origin of life besides design. Okay, go ahead, Kristen. It's about three minutes. Has science shown this? We tracked down James Tour, one of the world's leading experts in synthetic organic chemistry, to find out. All of these little pictures of molecules coming together to form the first cell are fallacious, are ridiculous. The origin of life community has not been honest. They will write in their own papers, they will see some small phenomenon and extrapolate what this means in the context of origin of life. And then they will work with the press and the press will extrapolate it all the more. And you get many, many people to see thinking that life has been all but made. All of this is a lie. Science scientist Craig Venter creates life for the first time in a laboratory. We're here today to announce uh, the first uh, synthetic cell. We haven't, haven't created life nowhere close. What they did is they took a cell. They took the genome out of that cell. They manufactured a genome that's similar to it, and they put it in. That is akin to taking an engine out of a Ford and putting it in to a viewer and then saying, look, I created automobiles. No, you just took one piece, and it's not even the engine. It's just the computer control box. You took out of one car and put it in another car. That's what it was like. But the design of the computer control box you got from other cells. Other scientists say they've been able to create protocells in the lab that are stepping stones to the first life. I can mix some chemicals together and test them in my lab. And these, these chemicals will start to self-associate to form larger and larger structures. The protocell moves as a metabolism. It can use energy and moves around. Protocells are a bunch of nonsense. That is like a proto-turkey. I take 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat from a delicatessen. I throw that into a pot. I add some turkey broth. I warm that up. And I throw in some feathers, and I say, that's a proto-turkey. Yeah, there's no order to it, but you know, if you wait long enough, a turkey will come gobbling out. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That's precisely what origin of life researchers have done when they make a protocell. Wait a second. Haven't we been taught with hundreds of millions of years anything is possible? Time is actually the enemy. You let these chemicals that have been made sit around. They show the degradation in a period of weeks. Weeks is the twinkling of an eye when it comes to prebiotic time scales. The chemicals decompose. So to think that the molecules could be made and sit there waiting for other molecules to come in, it doesn't happen. Organic chemistry doesn't work that way. Okay, so... Uh... You know, he gets a little fired up there, but I, I'll tell you, he's really a, an awesome dude, uh, humble, and uh, just really a cool testimony. I'll probably post a couple things after uh, today on the Facebook page, and I'll put I'll put his testimony up there. It's really cool. So, uh, you know, I like I like his proto turkey, and I liked his metaphor for you know swapping an engine and call it saying I created automobiles, because that is the level. Of, of sort of dishonesty in origin of life research. So most scientists, you know, really empirical, really respectable. Uh, but evolution, especially origin of life, it's, a, it's an area where the, the humanistic worldview is the only reason it gets any attention or funding. Because that's the dominant worldview of our culture, especially in acad academics and universities. But um, so just kind of, I'm just going to kind of briefly mention a few more things. You know, cells only come from other cells, okay? And when Darwin was first developing the theory of evolution, 
they didn't know anything about cells. So they just thought, oh, it's a little blob of protoplasm, whatever that is, right? And so they just thought, okay, so like, yeah, some lightning strikes a pool, and boom, you get a cell, you know? But it's funny because like about 100 years, maybe 50 years later, or earlier, there was this guy, Pasteur. And there were people, historically, who believed really silly things about life, okay? Uh, before Pasteur, there were these guys who thought that living things spontaneously generated, Okay, that they could just spontaneously come into existence. For example, meat would turn into maggots. People used to believe this. Okay, and uh, another one is that bacteria, which back then they called them animalcules, would just start growing in broth. And that that you know this one type of living thing, you know, uh, or formerly living thing, would just suddenly turn into other living things. And it made sense, you know, 500 years ago when nobody had a microscope. But uh, Pasteur, you know, it's pasteurization, pasteurized milk. Louis Pasteur was a, a Christian, and he didn't believe that. And, uh, and so he did uh, experiments to show that actually flies are landing on the meat laying eggs. That's where uh, the maggots are coming from. And actually, if you don't let air into the, well, if you don't let uh, particles in the air into the flask, Bacteria won't grow in the broth. And so about, I don't know, 200 years ago, it was decided like, yeah, life only comes from life. Cells come from cells. Things cannot just spontaneously be created. And, and I would describe it to you guys sort of like a, a pyramid, okay? If you found a pyramid on Mars, you would know there's life on Mars, right? If scientists, and there's this, this whole branch of biology now called astrobiology, and these, these scientists who really want to find life on other planets, and so far it's a desert out there, but if they even just found one molecule of sugar on Mars, they would say, we found life on Mars. Um, and it's, one molecule of sugar is just the fundamental building block of one type of, of, of the four big long chains of molecules called polymers that need to be made to, to make the first cell. So, so imagine, I don't want to get into all this. Uh, there's a lot of chemical reasons. Think, I'm going to go back to the pyramid. There's a lot of chemical reasons why you can't ever make the four things you need for a cell. Fat, okay, cells are wrapped in fat. They're wrapped in this beautiful double membrane of fat that has all these complex fats in it, 40,000 different types of fats have been found in cell membranes. And the only reason one cell has a membrane is because the last one had a membrane and it went boop, and now they both have the membrane. And then the membranes grow again. And so you can't just, you can't just take a cell, just the membrane. You can't just blend it and then throw it back into water. It doesn't turn back into a, a cell membrane without a lot of really important things that were in the last cell. Okay, and then here's a bigger problem. You need DNA to make protein. But you need protein to make DNA. And both of these things are like amazing pyramids or amazing towers that you would find in chemistry. And so like they don't just naturally form. If you take a bunch of things that a bunch of atoms that make up proteins and uh, DNA and you just blend them into their individual constituents and then you throw them out into a, a soup, you're not going to get DNA. But it's, it's even more bleak than that because the things that make them up don't even form without uh, structures and, and enzymes, these little machines called enzymes that put them together. So the idea that you could get life to just spontaneously create itself is absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And the only reason any scientists are even suggesting it is because they are committed to a worldview that says there cannot be an intelligent agent involved in the process. Okay? Uh, and now here's a really, really strong argument related to this stuff that's just come out in the last 20 years. And it, it's, it's, you know, like 500 years ago, maybe 1,000 years ago, people didn't have a concept of energy like we have today. Like today we know like, oh, you have electricity and then it shines through a filament and it produces light. And so we have electrical energy and then we have, you know, uh, UV energy or whatever. Uh, and then it hits a wall and turns into thermal energy. And so we, today we have this concept that energy can just kind of move. And it's a very abstract idea, right? There's a new idea just in the last 20 years. Uh, and it's... It's not just uh, guys in the intelligent design movement, but it's this idea of information in the same way. Like information being sort of an abstract, measurable thing in systems. And um, what we see, and the reason you can't make a cell, is because a cell has tons of information in it that it gives to the next cell 
so that it stays organized. And so you cannot find anywhere in human existence or in, in, in the world that we can ex- experience and measure, you cannot find anywhere where information comes from anything other than a conscious mind. Okay? Information has to come from a mind. So now we've found all this information in a cell. This is a really good secular argument for God's existence. Because naturalism is sort of this idea. You have to look around in the regular everyday life that you live. And you have to use things that you can measure in regular life to explain what's going on. If you follow that rule, that is sort of a humanistic, naturalistic way of thinking, the only way you can explain living systems is from intelligence. Intelligence had to create it. It did not form on a film. So, I don't know if all that made sense to you, but I hope you liked the clip. I hope you liked the proto-turkey. Okay, uh, next one. So we're going to shift gears now. So, Big Bang, really, how do you explain that without God? You, you can't, okay? Origin of life, no way you can explain that without God, or without intelligence. I mean, you can go secular and, and get into philosophy, but Personally, I'm very biased and I love Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And so when I see the best hypothesis competing, the hypothesis of Jesus Christ, for me, that's going to win. Okay? Uh, you know, if you're a Muslim, you'd say it was, you know, Allah or whatever. But, but, uh, on those two bases of science alone, there's got to be some sort of intelligent cause behind the universe and behind life. Science cannot answer those questions. Uh, next one that I'm going to go into now is miracles. Okay? And so what do I put here? People, so this is another uh, thing you'll get from people who are really skeptical. is People don't experience miracles today. So miracle claims in the Bible show us that it is not a historically reliable document. Okay? And I think this is a really good uh, argument on the surface. Because I remember becoming a Christian and thinking this. Oh gosh, why aren't there any miracles in re- regular life though? I mean, there's all these miracles in the Bible... But no miracles, you know. And so, I remember I was probably 18, been a Christian for two months. And I'm talking to this girl in the lab that I was working at at Oregon State. And she was a Christian, and she's maybe a junior or senior. And, uh, and you know, I probably ex- ex- just kind of described something like this to her. Like, yeah, you know, how come, how come there's miracles in the Bible, but no miracles in regular life, you know? And she just goes, oh, I know somebody who was healed miraculously of this knee problem, arthritis, or so, I don't even remember what it was, it was some girl's knee. And it, here's the thing, this is why it's not, it's not really about the evidence. Because you can give somebody a bunch of evidence, and if their heart is hard, they're not going to hear it. They're just, oh, you're, you must be biased. Oh, you must have bad sources. You know, they're just going to dismiss it and let it go. Um, so, but I was, I was a Christian now, and somebody told me, no, real miracles still happen. And I think that was probably the first time in my life I was like, really? You know, I was ready to hear that. You know, and so like, I'm going to go through some stuff. If a person doesn't want to believe this, they're going to dismiss it. Okay, you can't change the hardness of a person's heart. Uh, And so the way you present this to someone who's not a Christian needs to be really humble and kind and gentle. But this girl told me this and I thought, oh, that's amazing. You know, it was like hitting the lottery. I thought, oh, this is, this is so unheard of. You know, like this must be the only case in all of Oregon. And, uh, and then as I've been a Christian and been a thinking person, it's everywhere. People all over the place saying, oh, miraculous thing happened to me. Oh, miraculous thing happened to me. I mean, we're at a church, so it's going to be like every hand. But if I were to say, hey, who knows somebody who's been healed? You know, all the hands would go up. And, but even if you're in a secular auditorium and you ask that question, you know, just a regular, whatever, public school, you know, I, there's this guy, I watched this whole thing, and he's like, dude, people have experienced it. Especially people who don't, who don't know Christ, they have these things called near-death experiences. And the medical literature researches these things. They're called NDEs, near-death experiences. But they've got a little you know, medical abbreviation for it because it's a real deal. And, uh, and so, I could go off, and I, I so personally, I, I kind of just explore this stuff when I see something. Like, oh, I'm going to look into that, you know. So I'm going to give you a few of the interesting things that I've seen recently. Um, she put up the, the book by, uh, about, that just says miracles. Okay, so this book, this is a 1300 page book. And it's produced by this guy, Craig Keener, who's an awesome Christian guy. And, uh, but he has his PhD from Duke. And so he's a scholar, okay? And so he, uh, he investigated, 
basically, he's, he's actually interested in the claim. You know, people say, oh, you can't trust the New Testament. It has stories of miracles. So he's like, oh, you know what? Let's go, let's go document some of the ones today. So he goes out and he documents miracles all over the entire world. And he goes and gets MRIs before and after and x-rays before and after and case studies and eyewitness reports. 1,300 pages. And the table of contents just reads, oh, miracles in Asia. Miracles in Europe. Miracles in Africa. And the guy just goes and he just documents, this is normal human experience that miraculous things happen. Um, And so, like... If you're, if you're an atheist, right? If you're a materialist and you think all there is is matter, like you have a really big problem because wherever you go, you are going to find like real evidence of real supernatural things going on beyond just the material. Um, so another book that I, this one I've been reading, uh, it's called Dreams and Miracle, or Dreams and Visions. Okay, and how long have I been talking? Okay, um, so I was going to read a story from this to you, okay? And uh, I just love this stuff. I don't know about you guys, but I just love these things that are just... I mean, they're definitely less common than watching the sunrise, right? And a, and a solar eclipse. And actually, a solar eclipse is probably less common. But, um, you know, but that doesn't mean they don't happen. And so uh, this, this guy's a, a, a missionary in the Muslim world, and he's just been documenting, documenting what Jesus is doing in the Muslim world. And so I'm just going to read you a few lines from this, like maybe for a minute or two. These days, Jesus is introducing himself to Muslims. The phenomenon is not limited to a few isolated locations. It's not happening in just one or two African nations. There's, no, there's not just one. There, this is just one of several hundred people groups affected in India. He's not simply visiting some lucky town in the Middle East. What we do see is Jesus presenting himself to Muslims everywhere. The stories in this book are about real people I know personally or are known by my family's closest friends in the Middle East. If we couldn't verify the experience, we left it out. No Christian fairy tales here. More Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus today than ever before. In fact, we believe more Muslims have become followers of Jesus in the last 10 years than in the last 14 centuries of Islam. Could it be that the real story about Muslims today is not global terrorism? Could it be the real story about Muslims is that Jesus is reaching out to them with his offer of eternal life earned by his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead? And so I'm just going to read you like one example. This, this entire book is about this, this movement that seems to be going on. You're the one, a woman's shout broke out above the pandemonium of Cairo's Khan market. You're the one. Kalam Assam spun toward the voice, his eyes fixed on the black hijab walking toward him. That's like the full-on, you know, Muslim girl outfit. Uh, Yes, you, she said. You were in my dream last night. The woman, now close enough to be heard without shouting, breathed heavily from effort of pushing through the mob and from her own shock at the unfolding mystery of her circumstances. Those clothes, you are wearing those clothes for sure, it is you. And I don't know if you caught it, but she said, you were in my dream last night. And then he says to her, was I with Jesus? Yes, the woman cried. Jesus was with us. Jesus, and I'm skipping a lot. So if you want to read the book, you can have it. I'm done with it. Uh, Jesus walked with me alongside a lake and he told me how much he loves me. The woman in black told Kamal of the details of the vivid dream she'd had the night before their meeting. Um, that love I felt in my dream, his love was different than anything I've ever experienced. I've never felt so much peace in my heart. I don't want to leave. I didn't want him to leave. Uh, I asked this Jesus, why are you visiting me, a poor Muslim mother with eight children? And all he said was, I love you, Nor. I have given everything for you. I died for you. As he turned to leave, the last thing Jesus said was, ask my friend tomorrow about me. He will tell you all all you need in order to understand why I've visited you. But Jesus, who is your friend? I pleaded in my dream. He, here is my friend. Jesus pointed behind us. He has been walking with us the whole time we've been together. And so this story is this guy is in the marketplace and, and, and I would love to read you more about it, but the, the Lord tells him to go to the marketplace and he doesn't know why he's there. And then this girl, runs into him and you know and, and he tells the whole story of how she becomes a Christian and, and this book is just filled with stories like this. Um, okay, and so God does miraculous things. I mean I was thinking about Rory in Nepal. There's a guy, I don't know if Rory's told the story here, but there's a guy in Nepal, and so I, I know some things are sensitive, so I'm not gonna say much, but there's a guy in Nepal who had dreams 
that led him to Jesus, apart from ever knowing a Christian. But as as these, and it took years of these dreams. And as it led him to Jesus, these Christian missionaries came up the day the dreams were over. And so God is moving in the world supernaturally all the time. Okay, uh, and not just the third world. I mean, it seems like more of it's in the third world and the Muslim nations, desperate places. Um, but uh, there's this book. I don't know if any of you have read this. It's called Heaven Is for Real. And I mean, talk about an incredible book. I read this in like a day. Like I literally like sat down and could not stop reading this book because it's so phenomenal. And uh, it's just really easy to read. And uh, the things that it describes are so incredible. Uh, you know, but w- one thing in here. Uh, and, and this is just one example of an NDE, okay? And the, like I watched a documentary about near-death experiences where these two medical doctors who weren't even Christians were just trying to understand what, what are people experiencing? And they came to a conclusion like that there's an afterlife and that uh, there's a consciousness apart from our body uh, because in various things. Because people experience... Um, I'm not even going to read the story. But people experience... Things that cannot be explained just with material, okay? So this little boy, he's four years old. He, he almost dies. Spoiler alert. Hope you've read the book already. Spoiler alert. He almost dies, and he has a near-death experience. And, and just one of the like, most like, verifiable things about this is, while he is being operated on, he doesn't just, like a lot of near-death experiences, people see things that happened in the room when were, their heart was not beating. You know, they had no blood flowing through their body, and somehow they knew things that were going on in the room. Well, this kid, while he's being operated on, his dad is in another room uh, raging against God, like, you know, his dad's a pastor, and just, like, losing it, you know, because his son's about to die, and his son Colton sees him doing that, and then tells him about it when he comes back. And so not just, not just even in the room, but in a different room. And his mother was in a different room too and away from the dad. And he saw her too. And so there's, and this is not an isolated event. Okay? Like you can study near death experiences and peep, there are repeatable things that always seem to happen with them or at least commonly happen with them. Even uh, being able to say, see things and describe things that happened while they were dead or while they were unconscious. And so what, what, one more cool, let me just tell you one more cool story from this book. Uh, there's a, so this little guy, there's, I mean, it's a really entertaining book. Uh, this little guy has, has this thing with his dad because he, he said he's out on Jesus' lap. Uh, and, and his dad would always show him pictures of Jesus from like little kid storybooks. Oh, is this what Jesus looked like? Is this what Jesus looked like? And so uh, he don't, oh no, the eyes are wrong. The eyes are wrong. And that was what the little guy always said. And, uh, and then his dad reads this story. Go ahead, go to the next slide. This little girl... Next picture. This little girl had an encounter with Jesus. And she, her parents are atheists, but they've become, uh, they're a little, they're actually a little off the wall. Uh, but they've become like believers in some sense. Uh, but she was like six or eight. And she had an encounter with Jesus and met Jesus when her parents were atheists, right? And she's this gifted girl who can paint. So she painted, I think maybe 10 years old, she painted this picture of Jesus, right? And I mean, that's pretty remarkable in itself. And then the, the dad of this book shows this painting to the kid. And the kid goes, and the, every picture he's ever showed the kid, the kid's like, no, that's wrong. And he's like, dad, that's it. You know? And so it's just really like, I mean, you know, I don't know what you want to do with that. You know, you don't want to ever follow things too far and, and get too far away from the word, right? But it's just, there are supernatural things going on. Like you read this book, this kid knows things about... Like, he's four years old, he's talking about, hey, you know, Jesus has a cousin? You know, he just describes it in, like, kid ways. He doesn't describe it in, like, Bible ways. And, and so it's really interesting. Uh, bring up that verse now from John. Now, especially uh, miracles, science, anything, it needs to come under the authority of the Word of God. Okay? And so, uh, here's John, who, in, in my mind, is kind of the most spiritual gospel writer. You know, he's kind of more like the Pentecostal uh, gospel writer. But he's also so grounded. And, and he's telling a church, you know, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Uh, and I think the next verse says, And for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so, like, you cannot 
just, you cannot just read books like this and be a Christian. You need to read this book, okay? Because this book will keep you grounded, okay? There, there is a very real spiritual realm with really real spiritual things happening. But like I told you about that girl, her parents, they, they went a little off the wall with spirituality, okay? Which is really interesting. I think that almost confirms the Christian worldview more because, you know, like, if everything was just this nice cookie cutter, every miracle fits into the Christian box perfectly, you know, like that, that would almost seem fabricated. But like, I'm telling you things like it's, it's messy, you know, there's spirits and they don't all say the same thing. You know, there is a spiritual realm out there. And like, if you're a materialist and you say, all there is is material, all there is is what I can see and measure. You're not paying attention to all the evidence. There is no reason that we need to be committed to only the material world. Even scientists, this is kind of fascinating, even scientists believe in things they can't see. Or sorry, a lot of scientists believe in God. But even materialists, even atheists, believe in things they can't see. They actually believe most of the universe is made out of things they can't see. There's this stuff called dark matter and dark energy. And if you show a little graph, it's like, here's this little sliver, this is what makes up the material world. And then there's this other 90%. And based on their theories of relativity and quantum physics and I don't know, and, and some measurements of gravity and they're like, there's gotta be way more out there than we're measuring. And there's, and not even just matter, but also energy, you know? And so it's like, so you're saying there's way more than you know, but you're also saying everything has to be material. You know, it's just a very closed-minded view. Um, but yeah, so as a Christian though, test the spirits, hold to what is good. Because there's a lot of things going a lot of different directions when it comes to miracles, okay? Uh, and then the last one I'm going to talk about is, um, so I've talked, you know, Big Bang. There's, there's an origin to the universe that fits best into a theistic worldview. There's an origin to life that fits best into a Christian worldview. There is a, there's so much evidence for a spiritual realm beyond the physical realm, okay, which fits in a Christian worldview. And now, I'm going to bring you a little bit like, okay, now here's why it's Christianity, okay? And I'm going to show you uh, just a really quick clip about the resurrection. Like I said, I'm a science guy. This is history, okay? So it's not my strong suit. But it's really interesting to me. Go ahead and put up number four. So uh, I just was talking to somebody the other day, and it was, oh, Jesus didn't even exist, you know, that's, that's literally what this person told me. And this, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with high school kids, you know. But this is one of those, oh, I, I was raised very, this is, this is a lot of times I think people who are the most uh, vehemently against Christianity is like, oh, I was raised very Christian. And now I'm totally an atheist because I've thought through all the evidence, you know. And, uh, and, but here's the thing, that's all of us. You know, if God doesn't save us, if God doesn't open our eyes, we all make up our minds about stuff when we're like 16 and we pretty much stick with it. Maybe 21 if we're really mature, right? And so like, you can't look down on somebody just because they have a different view than you. Like, you're just as much of a retard as they are, you know? I said the R word, sorry. Okay, um, but this kid's, oh, there's no, this kid's, this kid's telling me, oh, I'm an atheist now. And I think he's like a foster kid and his dad's a pastor and it's kind of a mess. And, uh, there's not even any evidence Jesus existed, you know? And this kid is acting like a scholar, you know? Like, trying to, trying to you know, support his, his ideas with reason. And I'm like, dude, you don't even know the arguments. And so, I, I'm not a, a scholar of history. But uh, this guy I'm going to show you is named William, William Lane Craig. Really cool guy. And, um, and it's cool, this clip, I like this clip, it's only three minutes long. Because he talks about what people will concede. People who don't believe... Who are scholars, okay? What will they concede? What will they give you? Okay, okay, historically, how much does even the atheist historian believe? Okay, and so go ahead and show this video. Down through history, various alternative explanations of these four facts have been offered. For example, the conspiracy hypothesis that, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and lied about the resurrection appearances. The apparent death hypothesis that Jesus was taken down from the cross alive and somehow escaped from the tomb and presented himself to the disciples. The hallucination hypothesis that the disciples hallucinated post-mortem visions of Jesus and so forth. 
Such hypotheses, however, have been nearly universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. None of these naturalistic hypotheses succeeds in meeting the six criteria as well as does the resurrection hypothesis. Now, this puts the skeptical critic in a rather desperate situation. For example, a few years ago, I had a debate on the resurrection of Jesus at the University of California with a professor who had written his doctoral thesis on the evidence for the resurrection. He was thoroughly familiar with the evidence, and he could not deny the facts of the honorable burial, the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, or the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. And so his only recourse was to come up with some alternative explanation of these facts. And so he argued that Jesus of Nazareth must have had an unknown identical twin brother who was separated from him at birth, who grew up independently, no one knew about him, but who came back to Jerusalem just at the time of the crucifixion, stole his brother's body out of the tomb, and presented himself to the disciples who mistakenly thought that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, I'm not going to go into how I went about refuting this theory, but I think that the example is instructive because it shows to what desperate lengths skepticism must go in order to explain away the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, did you know that the evidence is so powerful that one of the leading Jewish theologians of today, the late Pincus Lapid, who taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Jewish theologian, declared himself convinced on the basis of the evidence that the God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. So, um, like I said, I don't, I don't read a lot of history. But what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, uh, he said he's debating a, a scholar from University of California who'd done his PhD dis- dissertation, so years of work on the evidence around the resurrection. And so, and and if he's debating him, it's because they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum of what they believe and uh but that guy still knowing that historical evidence still gave an empty tomb the honorable burial um and I a few other details so like you know i had a, another kid say to me one time like uh let's see how did this go oh yeah so you know he he was another one of those who'd kind of turned away and, and it was like oh you know I, I realized that ev- or evolution uh, Christianity was invented to control people you know and I actually had a brother an older brother when I was a kid and he, he had kind of fed me the same idea when I was a l- really little kid like oh like actually the Roman government created Christianity to have control over people and get them to pay taxes and that's why the Bible says pay taxes you know but if you uh, you know, for various reasons, if, if you look at the historical evidence, no honest historical scholar, Christian or otherwise, is going to say, yeah, there's clear evidence that the, the whole thing was created, you know, or something like that. Um, because there's, it, the sources go back so early, earlier than any other historical document of the time. And you got outside sources, like eight different historians, talking about this stuff in the first century. And so... It's just, I think it speaks a lot what, a, what a, a non-believing scholar is willing to give you. That he'll give you the empty tomb. Okay, the, the history there is really strong. And the reason people reject the resurrection as an explanation for the empty tomb is because they don't want to believe in a resurrection. Because it's going to mean they change their life. And it doesn't fit into their worldview. Uh, not that I want to pick on somebody else, but... I think a real, if you're interested in the history stuff, there's this really cool documentary that got made, a few of them, but one of them is the Bible versus the Book of Mormon. And, I mean, you know, you, most of you probably have no interest in the Book of Mormon, uh, which is good. And, uh, but the, what this documentary shows 
it, it, it compares claims in the Bible about places and artifacts and you know weapons and plants and animals, and it, it compares those to the Book of Mormon. And any any reasonable scholar is going to tell you the Book of Mormon is what's the word I wrote it down? It's an anachron. There, there's it's full of these things called anachronisms. Okay, and basically, if you were to make up a book. Right and tell people this is a Bible. You know this is from God, and it's got all this historical information in it. And you live in 1800, and it's about you know zero A.D. in North America. You're going to get a whole, and you're not a really scholarly person. You're going to get a whole bunch of the details wrong. Like it, the, the Book of Mormon talks about how there's horses. There were no horses in North America until, until Europeans brought them over. Okay, the Book of Mormon talks about how there's these weapons. You know, made of all these different types of metal. There was virtually no metal in North America until the Europeans came over. Talks about even things like barley and wheat. Plants that didn't exist in North America. And the Book of Mormon describes all these things. I was talking to a friend who's really intelligent uh, on Facebook who's a Mormon. And he kind of made this post like, you know, I believe even though I don't understand it all. And I was like, yeah, how do you... You know, because this guy, he's a lawyer. I mean, they read and they think ration all the time, you know. And... uh and I just, you know, and he, he admitted, yeah, you know, it's really hard because you cannot find a single place talked about in the Book of Mormon in North America, in the archaeology. They can't nail down anything that's in that book as a place that actually existed historically. Okay, I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming that the Book of Mormon was fabricated by Joseph Smith. Okay, but if you look at the Bible, you don't have that same problem. Historians, archaeologists use the Bible as a textbook to go and find things historically. You can still drive through, and I've never been there, but I've seen the signs. Bethlehem. You know, it's like, it's like an exit on the freeway. Bethlehem. You know? Like the places described in the Bible are real places. And like even what the Bible says about the plants that existed and the, when the metals existed and the pots and, and you know, they found just maybe 50, 75 years ago. Everybody's oh Pontius Pilate. Did he? There's no historical evidence that he existed. And then, like in the last 50, 75 years, they found a coin. I mean, Pontius Pilate's a pretty insignificant person of history. Like he's just some little governor of some little town, you know, a little you know Roman world spot. They found a coin with his name on it, you know. And so, like the, the things that are written in the Bible historically are verifiable. And so, this book is really. A reliable book, and and specifically the resurrection is is a really defendable um, position. And so, you know, there's a guy who wrote a book, "Evidence That Demands a Verdict," and it was all about the evidence for the resurrection. And so you could go check that out if you're interested in that. And uh, you know, let's uh, go ahead and have the worship team come back up. Is Adam around? Maybe, hopefully. And um, so now, what I wanted to talk to you about, you know, like. I hope, you know, I remember I was watching James Tour. That, that guy was going off about the origin of life. And I just love that guy. But it's like when you get passionate about proof and evidence, it gets really easy to be a big jerk, you know? And so I think, I mean, James Tour is the nicest guy ever. But, you know, and, and I like to think I'm the second nicest guy ever. But, you know, maybe I was a little hard on, you know, not on you guys probably, but like on people who don't believe, you know, but... Um, you can have, like I said earlier, you can have all this knowledge and you could win the case. You know, you could just prove somebody totally wrong. Like I don't, uh, you know, students will talk during passing times and we'll, you know, kind of joke around a little bit. But, but I don't like push, you know, evidence on people unless they're open to it. Because if you, if you do it the wrong way, you might as well just not do it. I remember, I remember I was driving back from the lava caves this is not something I initially just knew. Oh, when you have proof, just go off on people and they'll be converted. I remember I was driving back from the lava caves from this guy that I worked at Papa John's with when I was in high school. And uh, and I just start going. And he's like kind of like more like an atheist-minded person. I've been a Christian for like six, nine months now. And, and it's summertime. And, and I'm just like, oh, dude. And I just literally controlled the conversation for 45 minutes straight as we drove home. And uh, I just remember, it's like you just don't know this until you've done it a time or two. I just realized, this guy shut down five minutes in, and I was just going off, you know? 
And it's like, so are you converted now? And it's like, so I don't ever want to be around you again? You know? And so, like, it's got to come in love, you know? And so I wanted to share with you guys one story. Um, you know, like, this is useful information for us, but you got to do it in the right way. And, and so I wanted to show you something else that's going on in my life this week. Uh, because this is what, like, knowing that is good, okay? But Christian life is not filling our heads with knowledge, okay? And confirming our beliefs and making us feel good, okay? Christian life is supposed to be service to other people. And, and so uh, just a cool thing going on in my week this week. Uh, there's, there's a woman I know who's going through some really hard stuff, and she needed help moving. And so um, I, saw the, I saw the email go out when I was at work like 10 days ago that she needed help. And I thought, oh, maybe I should help, you know, but I've got 100 million things to do. And so I didn't, didn't respond to it. And then, like, two days ago, Friday night, I think, uh, somebody called me and was like, hey, can you come help with this? And I was like, you know, this lady really needs help. Like, she's, things are not going well for her. And so I was like, all right. And so then I, and then I text Adam, and he shows up, and Dustin Cloud shows up, just these fine gentlemen. And, you know, it was just like we showed up, and, like, I didn't want to be there because I have a million things to do, but I know how badly this person needs love. And, and this is a person who doesn't know the Lord, I don't think, doesn't define herself as a Christian. And, uh, but, you know, I went to help. And, uh, and then we helped, and it was cool. A bunch of other people showed up from my work. And, and so it was just like we got it all done really quick, knocked it out. It didn't really take much time. And, but then I was there, and like a, cut, like a few days before that, I'd been cutting firewood with Mark. And he was telling me about this firewood he had and how he needed to give some away. Uh, or wanted to, it was his heart to give it away to somebody who needed it. You know, we were like, ah, how do you know who needs it? I remember kind of saying that, you know. And, and, and then that day we're delivering, or we're moving all of our stuff. And, um, and we're moving from her old house to her new house. Her new house has a wood stove. And, and, and she's a woman in need. And, and then it's got a woodshed in the back. And there's about a week's worth of wood in the woodshed. And so then I'm like, hey, do you need some wood? And she's like, and I mean, we had just been talking like, yeah, how do you, how do you figure out who needs it? Like, I was like, maybe we should put it on Facebook, Mark. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. Like, and you know, it's like, I don't know how that would go, but it's like, wouldn't it be cool? We were talking like, wouldn't it be cool if like the church could like do loving things for people who really need it and love on people? And how would we work that out? You know? And it's like, yeah, that's a tough one. I don't know. And then he just kind of left it hanging. And then the next day I meet this girl and I see she needs wood. And I'm like, I know the guy who's got the wood you need. We're going to do, and we were watching all of our, it's nice to put your kids to work, you know, instead of playing Fortnite, you know, and just be like, hey boys, go stack wood for two hours, you know? And, and so it's like, okay, we're going to get together next Saturday. We're going to get two cords of wood. We're going to deliver it to this lady. And then I knew this lady was like different worldview than me, but she's living with her mom and, and we're moving her, and then I see this Bible right next to her mom's purse. And I'm like, oh, her mom, like, everything in their house has been packed. But her mom's got her Bible next to her purse. You know, like, she needs this thing. It's got to stay close. You know? And so it's like, here's this lady, and I just so badly want her to know Jesus. You know? And like, like, I mean, not that I don't care about her, just because she's a, you know, person created in the image of God. But I would hope that, like, if I give some time to help somebody... That somehow we might reach her with the gospel, you know? And then here's this opportunity to come back and love her again. And then her mom's probably in her house speaking into her life right now. And it's just like, oh, the Lord is using this. And so there's this verse about redeeming the time. Um, Kristen. Yeah, sorry. So, so this is New King James. See that then that you walk. This is this is what Christian life is supposed to be about. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And I love that phrase, redeeming the time. Like, what are you doing with your time, Christians? And now bring up the New Living Translation. It's just a little more like regular language. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools but like those who are wise, making the most of every opportunity in these evil days. And so just like, I'm just so encouraged that like, even though I've got this selfish ton of work that I need to get done at home, you know, like I, I got all kinds of house projects I need to do and a million things to do. But it's like, you know what though? Like the kingdom of God is more important than the house projects I need to get done. And you know, I gave up a half a day here and now we're going to go give up a day and get her some firewood, you know, but it's like, but we're going to make the most of this opportunity to love this lady and show her the love of Christ. And I haven't said a single thing to her 
about Jesus, you know? But, I mean, she, she knows me. She knows what I think. And so it's like we can go and we can just show this lady love. And maybe there will be a chance to pray for her. Maybe even be a little more bold. But it's like, man, as Christians, we should be using our time to make the most of every opportunity we've got, whether it's in the body or out of the body, um, for his kingdom. And, and not, that these, not that these proofs and evidences aren't important. And not that it isn't good to have head knowledge. But like, man, if we have all this knowledge, but we have no action. Like, it's useless. You know? We're practical atheists. So we're theologically, rationally, philosophically, we're, we're theists and Christians. But, but practically, do we live like atheists? You know, do we live like, like it doesn't matter, just do what you want with your own time and other people don't matter? Like, I want to I use the time wisely and make most of every opportunity, okay? So that's kind of my final exhortation to you guys. You know, use your time wisely this week and in your life. And as you fill up with information, don't forget to pour out with love, okay?